Um, okay, so as I was saying earlier about, good morning, as I was saying earlier about this subject this morning, we have got a challenge before us, and it's, and I, and one of the things I did was I looked ahead to see what Kay is doing uh, for the next couple of weeks, because to me it felt like there still wasn't enough work done on this particular, the subjects that are in here, and I didn't know how much longer she was going to be hanging. And sure enough, I'm really happy to say that next week we are going to spend uh, a week looking on the assurances of salvation. Um, how she's going to approach that, I'm not certain, because I, I could not spend enough time to look at all the details of how she's going to work that process. But I know she's going to look at a couple of those if statements in chapter 3, which I love. And I do think, and we will, we will capitalize on those just a little bit this morning in class, but then next week you're going to work on that much more diligently to see what it is that is the evidence that, in fact, you are of God's household and you are, of, uh, in fact, partakers of Christ. Um, and so I'm happy about the fact that we're going to go in there and look a little bit more carefully about evidences of salvation. And that can be, again, a difficult subject for some people who don't, do not understand um, the next subject, which I, is in, in my heart, which is covenant. Um, I had a conversation with, with um, some people this week about doing a covenant study on my own in the summer and then inviting a few people and I may have to see who is interested in that if they've not had it. It's such an essential subject matter that if you don't have an understanding of covenant, it was part of the conversation I had with this one uh, particular person yesterday in, in Sunday school class. If you do not understand covenant, you will never understand why you have assurance of salvation. Okay, so it'll always be a tug of war for you. So you have to establish your understanding that your salvation is a covenant and therefore it's unbreakable and therefore you cannot lose your salvation. It's an absolutely, absolutely a hard and fast doctrine. So then, of course, my question is, since I know this and I've seen this, and many of you have seen this, correct? I mean, those of you who've done covenant before, you're like, oh, yeah, Absolutely. Why is this such a debated issue in the household of God's family across the, the different denominations? Why is it such a problem? What do you think the, the issue is? Why do people not see that salvation is not something you can lose? I think they don't do a study on covenant. Oh, yeah. Okay. They just don't do the study. That's true. Okay. That's right. But I do think that what, what you just said is no one can snatch you from my father's hand is true because that's the power of God to hold us. However, th there are many who would argue to you and they would use Hebrews 2 and 3 and 4, rather, 3 and 4, to say that you can walk out of it through a disobedience. Exactly.
obviously worked with you for you know, your well, and Carrie, wasn't it last week that you talked about you looked at the word study on partakers and that partakers of Christ had to do, was related to the idea of taking a meal or having a drink with someone, which are both covenant imageries, right? They, those of us who've done the study of covenant understand that those are things that you do in covenant making. Okay. Yes. In union with. And in union to become one. Yeah. Covenant. <laughs> Again, we're back to covenant. So, yes, I, I see what you're saying. And this is another reason, because there are various nuances sometimes of some of these words, that's where things can get a little bit confusing. We have one that we're going to be working with this morning, which is the word, the rest of God. And in the rest of God, there are also some various nuances. And, um, you know, one is uh, the rest of God, which he speaks of here, that you will either enter or not enter based on hearing the word, believing it, and obeying it. But then there's also another kind of rest of God, which you and I delight in as believers, which is this peace which per, uh, surpasses all understanding that we receive. But that's a different kind of rest. That word actually, rather than rest, should be the word peace. Um, but people speak of it as being the rest of God. And so by doing that, often I think it, it convolutes the, the understanding of what the rest of God is actually speaking about. It can be a verb or a noun. Right, Exactly. Well, and that's true. So the verb would be the act, the, I'll see. <coughs> right. That's a good, that's a good, uh, breaking down of it. I think that's helpful. And what happens though is when people, I think we're used, you know, said at the beginning of this, one of the issues, why do people get this issue about salvation and your assurances that you have in it so messed up is because they don't study. And if you don't study well enough, you never break it down that far. You never stop to actually meditate to say, now, what are they actually speaking of here, right? So fortunately, our homework this week helped us to break it down, to begin to break it down. But next week, we're going to go into the evidences of salvation, and that's, that's just one quality, okay? Um, much later in the book of Hebrews, we will be looking at the various covenants of God. So here's another problem I see for people who are going through Hebrews who do not have good foundations, if you do not understand the distinctions between those three major co covenants, the, and those being the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the law, and then the new covenant in Christ, if you do not understand the distinctions between those three, what happens is a lot of people think that the covenant of the law is a covenant of salvation. And they think that it results by, by obedience to it in salvation, which is not true. So the, 
and I can understand how those misunderstandings come about. They come about because we speak of the word salvation and then sanctification all in one breath. Justification and sanctification are different. Although we use the same word, salvation. We actually say use the same word salvation in scripture for glorification. That is the, the, the life to come in that eternal place with God. So if you have not slowed down to study those three verb tenses so that when you're in the word of God, each time you come upon the word salvation, you have to stop, pause, and say, okay, which are we speaking of here? Justification, sanctification, or is this glorification? Well, we saw in chapter 1 that the angels, our ministering servants, sent out to give uh, aid or help to those who will inherit salvation. And, and then in the very next chapter, it speaks about the world of which, to come of which we are speaking, speaking of the world to come. So what is the world to come? The glorification place. So that help that those ministering servants are been sent to help us in are for those who receive glorification. So it's in that particular verse, that's a glorification statement. So again, you have to slow down. You have to, you know, dissect these things apart, cut them into little pieces, and then lay each one in their right spot. It's, con it is confusing sometimes. And for a new believer who does not have doctrines, 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 then they can get confused on this. All right, so then in chapter 11, what I found when I went and looked ahead on that, we are going to do a much more in-depth study simply on the subject of the rest of God, okay? Now, I don't know, I don't remember, you know, it's been years and years ago that I did Hebrews, but I don't remember all the things that we're going to do in there, but I do know by having just looked ahead at my, in my old book, I looked and flipped through the pages and saw, oh, we're doing more on the rest of God, yay, because we're not going to possibly even begin to get through enough of it today. So what we're going to do today is we are going to try to look at the, the pieces of chapters 3 and 4. We want to look at that flow of thought between 3 and 4 and see how they relate to one another. Okay, so that's just step one. That's how we're slowing down enough to get that flow and see how these two relate. Then we want to look at um, um, the, the contrast. We know that keywords and contrasts often help rise to the surface points that help us to clarify subjects that are going on, and those obvious contrasts show us what the competition is that's going on, right? And sometimes, it, and hopefully in this case, it's actually going to clarify even a definition of what this rest is that they're speaking of in this particular chapter by looking at our contrasts. We're going to do that together. And then the other thing I want to do is look at just the God's rest uh, from the pictures that are given to us. Now, one of the things I want to start us with is something that you all will be getting to eventually, but I want to show them to you right now uh, kind of as a foundation of understanding that something that I kind of came to this week was Hebrews seems to me to be a book written by an author who is trying to clarify to Israel what God's pictures were for them and how they are fulfilled in Christ. And he does that in, on lots of subjects in this book. He talk, and it's obvious to you and I later, not so much here, as, but it will be when we're done today. But later when we look at uh, the temple works, who is the sacrifice? Who's the lamb? Jesus. Who, you know, who is um, the high priest? 
Jesus, right? So, I mean, you can, and you can look at the things that are going to come up later in Hebrews and see the obvious that there was a picture given to them and that Jesus was it. There was a picture and a reality, right? And so there's a couple of verses I want to start us with that shows us that this is something that's going on in this particular book. The pictures that are given by, by God. Okay, so let's look at verse Hebrews 9 9. Someone go in there and look at that one first. 9 9. I'm jumping way ahead, because, but I just want to point them out to you because he doesn't say that here in chapters 3 or 4 that there are symbols, but he does actually say it in a roundabout way, and we're going to look at it more carefully. Well, I just want you to see these verses that you see, see what I'm talking about first. Okay, so what does it say in Hebrews 9 9? Um, who wants to read that one for us? Oh, okay, Susan. And hold on, Susan. Uh, there's another one in Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. Who would like that one? Someone else read that. 23 and 24. Okay, Celeste will do that one. And then one more in Hebrews 10, 1. Who's going to get that one? Diane. Okay, thank you. All right, so Susan. Sure can. You go for it, girl. Okay, so what is the outer tabernacle that they had in their temple? It was a symbol, okay, for the present time. Symbol for the present time. So we, show, we see him actually say that. That's very clearly stated, would you not say? Okay, so in Hebrews 9.9. 9. The next one is Hebrews 9.23 and 24. Okay, so before what he was before they did it in a copy, and it was a copy of the what? Things Things in heaven, the true one, right? So copies of the true. Uh, and that is in 9, 23, and 24. Then the last one is Hebrews 10, 1. And in this case, it's talking about the subject, I think, of covenant. Go ahead. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, which were offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. I love that. So it's the shadow of good things to come. So we can put a clock on that one, showing that before it was simply the shadow, but it's a shadow of things that are yet to happen. That's in chapter 10, verse 1. Okay, so I wanted to just get that much down just to get your mind into the idea that there are are images. Would you say that when you think back in Scripture, how often does God use imagery to help us 
understand a spiritual truth? Can, can you name a few that just pop into your mind? Okay, Passover end. Give, tell us how it's an imagery and what, what it portrays. He's the, so, okay, so it's a lamb. The lamb is the image then, and he portrays Jesus, who is the reality. Okay, very good. Excellent. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah, okay. He t throughout all of the Old Testament, there's passages where he talks about the land and, a, and Israel itself being a vineyard. Okay, very good. Yes. Right. But then there's also the landowner who rents his vineyard out to the uh, husbandman who right. worked the land, right. and then he sends his servants to get his vineyard. So he uses a parable to give you that 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 true reality um, story about who Jesus is and when he comes and so forth. Okay, true. Sheep and goats. Okay, so there's the imagery of sheep and goat and puts one on the right and one on the left, right? And so the imagery there is who are the sheep? Because what happens with them? And they enter into... And they enter into God's kingdom in that imagery, right? And the, sh and the goats, what happens to them? Amen. They are cast into eternal darkness, okay? So there's imagery in that. So, okay, so now that we've kind of got your mind thinking on this, there's lots of imageries. Jesus is the bread. He's the bread of life. He is the, the light of the world. Uh, an imagery that I think is important in context to some of the stuff that we looked at this w week, uh, particularly in day five of your homework, is water, what does water represent often for God? How does he use it? Eternal life. Because without water, what happens to a human being? They die. And so in that, God used a couple of situations through the life of Moses to demonstrate his life-giving water not being just sustenance for this life, but that it had something more and beyond it, right? We're going to look, I think, if it's not next, I think it might be next week, but if it's not next week, it's the following in the rest of God. We're going to do a little more work on that. There's a couple of uh, places. One, I think, was in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about Christ being that rock, which was their living water that, that they traveled with while in the wilderness. Um, and so in that, what I'm showing you then is imagery was used by God, has been used by God, really from the very, very beginning of his word in order to help us humans understand God's spiritual truths, right? By definition, that's what a parable is. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Okay, so knowing that, let's start with looking then at some uh, rests that are mentioned to us in chapter 4. Well, let's see. Wait a second. Let me think on this for a second. Do we want to start there? We should probably go back to 3. Let's start with chapter 3 and first just do our flow of thought in order to work up to chapter 4. Let's do it that way, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, chapter 3. All right, what do we see in chapter 3? There is a heavenly calling. When you looked at chapter 3 on the whole, what were some of your key words? 
Heavenly calling. Were there synonyms to that? Rest. <laughs> Rest, okay. Okay, and, and you have already come to a conclusion that the heavenly calling is the rest, so that's good. Okay, that's good. Any other synonyms to the heavenly calling? What, how else are we called? What other words show us that calling? Our confession? Our hope and our confidence? Okay. How about when you hear his voice, the voice of God, then that would be the heavenly calling, correct? When you're hearing his voice, that's his calling. All right. So all of those could be marked as synonyms to one subject, although they can be distinct. And especially when you're a new preceptor, it's hard to kind of decide, do I mark that differently? Do I mark them all the same? It's kind of convoluted in this particular um, book. But you can do whatever works best for you as long as in the end you come to a clarity of understanding that they are in essence resulting in one subject matter. And if you make a list on each one of them, you know what happens with them? Did anybody do that? Did you, once you mark those, did you make some lists? In your list, did you not see those words overlapping that you ended up putting information from one uh, list onto the other list and they almost all became, it almost became like redundant and you're like, okay, how about if I just put all of these, t these words, like the voice of God, the calling of God, the testimony, the, the witness, the witness, all these things, the assurance, the hope, put all those words here and then underneath it, ex give me my list. Because all those words seem to almost overlap with one another, don't they? So that's how you kind of discern in the end that they're kind of all talking about the same subject matter and that they're, they're drawing you to the same place. So the, so the advantage of slowing down and doing those lists is that what you do is you come to see instead of those as all isolated words that are different as being really just synonyms that he's using in here to help you see that they're all related to one thing, right? All right, so that's in chapter 3, so it's a heavenly calling. We did see right away that there's a, con there's a contrast between Jesus and who? Moses. Okay, so those were the two entities that were kind of laid as a foundation in chapter 3 to get you started. Now, what was going on um, between Jesus and Moses? How is Jesus better than Moses, and why would this author bring Moses up? Because Moses brought the law. Okay, all right. Okay. The houses, both were faithful, others to their house. Moses was faithful in his house, and he was a sinner. Right. Jesus was a sinner. Right. Okay, good. All right. And the audience itself is who? The Jews, right? They're Hebrew people. Therefore, the, the idea of Moses to them would be a significant character and a person of great respect and honor among them. And so now what, what is this author then trying to do concerning Moses and Jesus? That Jesus is superior. That's exactly right. That he is greater than or better. He, has, he is counted worthy of more glory and he, and he is the builder of a house which has more honor. Okay, so... More honor and more glory would be key words as well. Um, there was a negative quality also that gets brought up in this. The, there's, first, there's the, the quality of Jesus being faithful, Moses being faithful, right? But then there's the opposite that is also brought up in this. And what are some of those um, key words? 
Pardon? Unbelief and hardened hearts, right? Disobedience, sin. And see, again, all of those are individual words that could be marked individually. And yet, when you, when you look at them and start making lists, what happens to them? They again merge together almost. So you can, so you in a many, in this particular text, you can take all those words that show rebellion, hardened hearts, disobedience, unbelief, and you can mark them all in the same way. Because this author is drawing you to see about those words that they are basically the contrast, right? To what's, what's going on with, with the other side of it, which is what? If you're not disobedient, what are you? Obedience. So it's an unstated contrast. Disobedience, the opposite would be then obedience. If Christ is faithful, and if you want to be faithful as Christ was faithful, then you must be what? Obedient, not disobedient, correct? Now, does that flow into chapter 4 when we move forward? Do we see that reiterated in even a more distinctive way? And how he goes from looking at Moses in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, what does he take you as your demonstration? Who becomes the demonstration of the disobedience? Those people of Israel, right? So it was, first it was Moses, their leader, and then he moves on to the people who were under Moses. And in both cases, what he shows you there then is that, that Moses was faithful, but what about the people? Not faithful for the most part. Now, does that mean every single person in Israel was not faithful? No, it does not. Okay, so now this kind of very subtly brings up the issue about this book on the whole. We have a book that's written to the brethren. It's written to um, um, the, the Jewish, it looks like to the believers, right? But is it only addressing believers or is it addressing actually a congregation of people? It's really a congregation. Within the congregation, what do you have? Some believers and some unbelievers. Does everybody understand that? Which is why, because he's, he's addressing a congregation, this is the same issue that we have when we did um, the letters to the churches in Revelation, where it sounded like, well, it's a letter to a church. So aren't those believers? Yes. But what was the rebuke he gave to five out of the seven churches? If you don't repent, What? You will not eat of the tree of life. You will not be dressed in white linen. You will not walk with me. I mean, he, he, your na- you will not be given a new name. You will not uh, eat of the tree of life in heaven. So the, the opposite is that, that in that particular book, the same thing happens in that book in Revelation as we're seeing happening here in Hebrews where he's addressing a congregation. And although he's calling them the brethren and the partakers in Christ, he actually caveats in verse 3, if. Did you notice that? Let's look in chapter 3 at that, I think it's 6, in verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, what? If we hold fast our confession. So you tell me what is the opposite of that. If you do not hold fast your confession, then what? What can you say is the contrast to that? You are not what? Of the house of God. So if you, are, if you hold fast, you are God's house. If you do not hold fast, what? 
You are not God's house. So now let's bring it down to another level so it's even simpler understood than that. If you do hold fast, you are saved. If you do not hold fast, you are not saved. Is that pretty simple? Does that make sense? Now, that would not make sense to a person who's hanging on to saying, yeah, but he's writing to believers. That's where they get messed up. They forget this is, he is writing to an audience, which is a congregation. And later, he makes it very clear that he's making this statement. He says, um, uh, where is it? That says that if there be among you with with a hardened heart. Where does he say that? Okay, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren. This is a word of caution. This is a word of warning, right? You better take care that there not be any one of you that has what? An evil, unbelieving heart. So he's saying to the congregation, yes, I'm, I'm speaking to you, congregation, and as every pastor does when he gives a sermon on Sunday morning, he approaches them in a gentle spirit as basically saying to them, because you're sitting here, because you've gathered here with us, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to speak to you as if you were all God's children. However, in a very stealth way, in a very, in a very gentle way, he also says, but let me warn you, least there be any one of you who have an unbelieving heart. You need to take care. So he's asking them to do what concerning their own relationship with God? Examine yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. Can you see that in chapter three, how that's laid out for us? Now, he, we are able to get to that point because we slow down and take this all apart. But if you do not do that, you would not see that. And therefore, the, the consequence of not slowing down and looking at, for, at it in that way and seeing that what he's doing is giving a warning because he's giving a congregational uh, um, address. Thank you. That's the right word. He's addressing the whole congregation. If you don't see it from that perspective, then, then you have a dilemma. Because if you absolutely hang on to the fact that you think he's only speaking to believers, then you've got all these problems like an evil, unbelieving heart. And that if you don't hold fast, if you're a believer and you don't hold fast, then what can happen to you? Then you're not of God's household. That means you can be what? Cast out and now become an unbeliever again. That God would now reject you. Now, for us who have done the covenant studies, what we know is in covenant making, covenant, when God makes covenant with you, what does he give you to give you assurance? The seal by his Holy Spirit. And he says when he gives you that seal, he, ge he gives it to you until the day of redemption. Now, what I think is really interesting is in chapter 4, he kind of gives us an insight into that. How does God know who to give the Holy Spirit to? Yes, he does. Does he say anything in chapter 4 about how it is that God goes about that? How God examines us? Yeah, verses 12 and 13. Move over. Chapter 4, 13, 12 and 13. 4. See, remember, he, he starts in 4.1. He says, let us fear. Now, what does that word fear mean? Yes. And it's a, it, did anybody do a word study on it by chance? 
It has to do with a reverential fear. And I thought it was interesting because um, Pastor Rob took us into Daniel and he showed Daniel when the Lord came and spoke to him and how he, how he had a fear in that moment. And God touched him. Christ touched him, gave him strength, put him up on his feet so that he would hear. But his response to God's coming was a reverential fear which caused his pallor of his skin to go become uh, pallor. It, it caused him to tremble. I mean, he was really in a, re, in a place of reverential fear. That's what this fear is talking about here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us fear, lest any one of you come short of it. It what? That rest of God. At least you not enter into rest. At least you not become of God's household. You need to fear that because why? Indeed, what has happened in verse 2? What did they heard? They had already heard the good news. Now in verse 12, he says, for the word of God, that's the good news, right? Is what? With whom we have to do now. I looked that word up too. And it's saying basically give an account to. To the one which we must give an account. He's given us his word, which is the good news. He is the judge. And by that same word which he has given to us to draw us into the rest of God, by that same word, if we reject it, if our hearts become hardened, then we will have to give an account to him for that. And how does he know who to give his spirit to? Because he judges the hearts and the intentions of the heart, which I think is very interesting. There have been people in my life I've seen walk an aisle, and they, for a period of time, they look like they're walking with the Lord, and then all of a sudden, they just totally walk away. They reject it, and they just, you know. And in here, what, what we see is that, that um, if you have the mindset that you can lose your salvation, then it looks like you did enter in, and now you walked away. But what does God say about those that truly know him, and we're going to research this more next week, is that they will do what? They will hold fast. Now, what's really cool is there's other verses, and we'll do those later, but where, yes, we will hold fast, but you know who, who it is that actually holds us fast? Jesus himself. He is faithful to hold us fast. He will keep us. He seals us until the day of redemption. So he will make sure that we hold fast. Um, and he does that in a variety of ways. One of the verses I looked up last night, which I thought was good, was in Romans chapter 2. Um, Craig knows these verses real well, but where it talks about he gives us his spirit, and it's by that spirit that he then convicts us of whether things are, are righteous or unrighteous, basically. And that's part of the evidence even as to whether or not we're in his house, is whether or not we receive conviction about what's right and wrong. And for those of us who know God and actually have his spirit, his conviction will come upon us. And by that measure, he holds us fast because he gives us conviction so that we will make correction as we go along. Sometimes we can be a little stubborn in it, and sometimes it may take us a little while. But if you're truly his, what will you do? You will repent. It may take you a while, but you will repent. However, you cannot remain in, in unrepentance for years and years and years in a way which dishonors God and him not intervene and do something. He will either judge 
judge you. In other words, uh, like uh, there's passages that talk about allowing Satan to sift them, that there be preservation of your soul, that he might destroy your flesh, that your soul be saved. So that's a spiritual sin unto death that God can allow to happen. But generally, uh, one of the great verses, I think, is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where it says that we're approaching, that when we approach the Lord's Supper, the table of God, that we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're right with one another, that our behavior, in other words, has been right before God so that it glorifies him. He says, because by not doing so, some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. So it's really cool. We're going to get to kind of draw more of this in together in the next two weeks. We're going to build on this in a more strong way to, to really see this. But how does God know who to give his spirit to? Because in chapter 4, he tells us what? He, he knows our heart. And by his word, he examines our heart. Okay? So he won't give his Holy Spirit to someone who is not a true confessor. Okay? If, in fact, you are of God's house, you will hold fast to your confession. Then he says it again later in chapter, uh, um, four, in chapter 3, verse 14. He speaks about that term that we, we briefly mentioned earlier about the being partakers of Christ. There's another if statement in there. And what does he say there? If, right. So if we hold fast, he says... You have become partakers of Christ. Now, that phrase, having become partakers of Christ, what does that, what by definition does that mean? That, that you are of his house, that you have been saved, right? This, you have entered into salvation. And if, in fact, you, you are a partaker of Christ, then you what? You will hold fast. And so if you don't hold fast, then what are you not? You are not a partaker of Christ. So do you see now why I'm saying to you that the audience that he's speaking to, although he refers to them as the brethren, he is actually speaking to a congregation, and among them may be some who are not saved. And so he's addressing these issues with, for, the, for the sake of those few. He's saying to them, each of you individually need to examine your own hearts to make sure that you, in fact, are of the house. I know, exactly. Except that, except that if your interpretation is that you can lose your salvation, then he would say, no, you are talking to believers, and some are going to fall away, and some are going to come back, and they're going to fall away, and then they're going to come back. But that's how they would interpret that if they, believe, they do not believe in assurance of salvation. But what I am saying to you is in this, this lesson today, what we're going to do is lay enough foundation down so that next week we're going to look at that subject of assurance of salvation and we're going to establish a, some doctrines that you can, you can hold on to fast so that anytime you go into the Word of God and it looks like somebody can lose their salvation because they do or do not, they don't obey or they do obey, then what you can understand is it's either talking to an unbeliever or it's talking to us concerning not salvation but sanctification, which is for us to come into an obedience. But in this case, it's clear he's saying you either are or you are not a partaker. You either are or you are not of God's house. That's talking about not sanctification, is it? That's talking about justification. You either are justified or you are not justified. And the evidence is seen by whether or not you hold fast. 
And if you're holding fast, it's because God is holding you fast. It's by his grace and his grace alone that you're able to do that. And he works by the power of his Holy Spirit to give you conviction so that you will know how to do that and that you'll be able to do that. He strengthens you. I loved it when he pointed out Daniel yesterday in, in his sermon, in Pastor Rob's sermon, that Daniel was strengthened by the touch of God and by the words that came from that that appearance, that pre-incarnate appearance of that Christ, where he spoke to him and he said, uh, uh, not to have fear, not to fear, right? I have come to give you insight and understanding. So for you and I, this is what we're looking for, insight and understanding, and to see it from the correct interpretation of what is going on here. What is the subject matter then in chapters 3 and 4? What is the subject at this point, if you are and if you aren't, what is the subject matter? Saved Either saved or not saved. That's the subject matter. He's saying you have to examine your heart. God will examine it one day. That's Therefore, he gives that warning. He's, he, he says in verse 4, Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering it. There's always hope for you. So, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I can tell you in my personal testimony, I think I've told you this before, but I grew up in a Christian home and I thought I was saved for many years. But it wasn't until one day God really got to me through my personal experiences where I bowed my knee before him and entered into salvation. There was hope for me. That heavenly calling continued in my life. And yes, it was progressive through my whole life. The things that I experienced when I was young helped me come into faith as an adult. But I was not actually into faith until one day I bowed my knee. And so he says there's a promise that remains of entering that rest. And that promise still remains when? according to verse 4, or chapter 4. When is the, what is the time frame? Today. Today there remains, and as long as it is still called today, there remains a hope for you of entering into that salvation. And uh, I, I know one of the things I struggled with when I was first became a believer, and when someone challenged me and said, I don't think you were saved when you were 9. I think you actually got saved at 21 when this experience happened to you. And I got scared because I thought, oh, what if I had died between 9 and 21 and I wouldn't have been, in, and I would have thought I was saved, but I wasn't saved. Well, you know, the reality is, who's sovereign over that? God, does he know the end from the beginning? Yes. Does he know to preserve my life until I will come into to that which he knew I was going to come into one day? Yes. So you can rest in knowing that just confessing what's true about where you were and where you are now does not make you vulnerable in the past to something that wasn't going to ever happen because God knew. He preserved my life until that day when I finally examined my heart and said, are you actually holding fast to me? Are you actually holding on to the assurance of your salvation? Who is who, by the way? And what is my confession? What is your confession? Who is your confession? Jesus himself, and all those things which pertain to that salvation, correct? All right, so three and four, we are looking at the subject then of salvation, okay? Are we good? Okay, yay. Well, step one is done. Let's go on then, and let's look at chapter three then, the flow of thought. What do we see in chapter three? 
chapter 3's primary subject then is about this heavenly calling, right? That Jesus' heavenly calling is better than that of the calling of Moses was. And it's really cool because the word um, testimony is used for, for Moses, which is the word witness. So he was simply a witness of those things which would be spoken of later, but Jesus himself is the heavenly calling. Correct? That, that's a good contrast in there. So in chapter 3, uh, although before we have titled this simply, Jesus is greater than Moses, and that in simplicity is, is a, can be a really good title if you want to just keep the better than points down. Um, but let's just for the sake of today's conversation, let's, let's clarify what it is that's actually better. What is the better quality of what's going What is our major uh, key word in chapter 3? Or key subject, I should say. And it's, right, and he opens it, though. He says, and therefore, holy, heaven, uh, have holy brethren, partakers of what? A heavenly calling. Okay, so it's the heavenly calling that he's speaking of that is the major subject here, right? The heavenly calling. Chapter 3, and who is the heavenly calling? Jesus. So Jesus is the heavenly calling. And later he says you need to be careful that you examine yourself, lest you have come short of it, right? So he's, he's making it clear that some of them may have, and he wants to make sure that they examine themselves. So in the first paragraph, verses 1 to 4, what do we have um, as the main warning or the main instruction? What I did is I used a lot of the let us statements to help guide me in making some decisions on, on my titles in chapter 3 and 4. So what, what do we see in chapter 3? Let us do what? Well, it doesn't, it's, not, it's an implied let us. Verse 1, let us do what? Consider Jesus as what? Okay. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our calling. And since our major subject in here is all about this calling, the heavenly calling, you see it, how, it, how they relate to one another, how the, the first paragraph answers or addresses the title of your chapter? It's because he says, Jesus is the heavenly calling. So consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our calling. Now those words apostle and high priest, if you do a little bit more work on them, they help to expound your understanding of what he's really saying about why you need to consider Jesus, right? Um, an apostle, what is an apostle? One who is sent with a message, right? Uh, it can also be, uh, uh, sometimes uses the word ambassador, right? So Jesus is the ambassador, or he is the one who was sent with a message, by who for, and with what message? <coughs> by God, and with the message pertaining what? Good news, right? the good news. All right, one through four. Then let's go to uh, five and six as the next one. What is the exhortation there? The let us do what? 
Okay, good. Hold fast to Christ. And there's two things. He's our confidence and hope. Good. Excellent. Five and six. Then you're going to go to seven and oh, oh, seven to eleven. Do not har harden your heart. And what is the contrast to not hardening your heart in this particular passage? If you don't harden your heart, what do you do? You hear his voice, right? Because that's what it says. Just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So the contrast there is hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So you might want to title it either don't, don't harden your heart or you can title it the positive, hear his voice, right? And if you hear his voice, what is the result of that? They didn't get to do it, but you can if you hear his voice. You enter into his rest. So hear, hear his voice. And enter his rest. Now, there, by that statement alone, what do you now understand at this point about the term rest in the context of these chapters? What is it speaking of? Entering into what? Into salvation. This is a salvation message. Hear his voice and enter his rest. And then 12 and 13, there's another warning. Mm -hmm. And encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching, right? Uh, as long as it is still called today, right, so that you can enter, that none of you be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so in that one, it's take care, and I'm going to put this in red, because this take care is really a good point to understand that, uh, the under, to have the understanding that what he's saying here is he is not speaking to just believers, he is speaking to an audience, and he's saying Make sure you examine yourself that you are actually in the faith. There might be some here among us who are, have deluded themselves by the deceitfulness of sin. And maybe you're not actually in faith, so you need to examine yourself to know whether or not you are. Next week, we'll look to see what are the evidences that you know you are in faith, okay? So take care uh, that there not be anyone am among you with an unbelieving heart. I'm just going to put it this way. Take care of an unbelieving heart, that there not be an unbelieving heart in you, okay? Then 14 to 19. Mm -hmm. And what are we to do as partakers? Hold fast. Very good. Again, we had it hold fast up here, and now we have it again. Hold fast as partakers of Christ. What... What you can see then here, just at this point alone, is that what he's saying is that if you're not holding fast, now in the case of holding fast, holding fast means you're, you're what? Give me some terms that he's talking about in here. What is, what is the demonstrations that he's given to us? 
being obedient, right? Hearing God's voice and being obedient. So if you're not being obedient, what does that mean? Yeah, right. But I mean, give me some demonstrations. What kind of things might you be doing? Living habitually in sin in a way that there's obviously the Holy Spirit is not giving you conviction. And obviously, maybe even your brothers and sisters who might be coming to you and challenging you on things, you're, you're resisting that, right? Because one of the things that God said to Israel over and over to the people on the whole was they are stubborn, stiff-necked people. Are there stubborn, stiff-necked, so-called believers among you who maybe what we need to do is challenge them to say, check yourself to see whether or not you're actually in faith. Because those who are in faith are to do what? Hold fast to our confession. Our confession is that Jesus came to die for our sin. And in Romans says, then should you remain in sin? May it never be. Because you have been saved out of that, you are now to live in a life of righteousness, to glorify God. And if you actually have his spirit, then you will want to do that. The I want to will be given to you by his spirit, right? By his, yes, because his spirit indwells you. Fruit, mm, yummy. <laughs> She's eating an orange right in front of me. Okay, hear his voice and enter his rest. Take care that there not be an unbelieving heart among you. Among, in, in any one of you. So he's saying individually, look at yourselves individually. And he said, therefore, hold fast as partakers of Christ. If in fact you are, if you've examined your life and you're going, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I occasionally sin. I get that. But habitually, I am living in a way I think that honors God. And I feel my conscience is clear in that. Then you're good to go. You are a partaker of Christ in that case. And our, week, our work next week will help us to really see that more clearly. Okay, so chapter 4, flow of thought. Now, here's what's interesting. How does chapter 4 open? <laughs> Therefore. Right? So when there's a therefore, what does that tell you about what's following it? It's connected to what was said before. So they're not two isolated subjects. He's continuing the flow of thought. And so you have now entered into the next segment, which shows you a therefore, and it connects you back. Right? Therefore. So chapter 4, then verses 1 to 5, what do we see is his major exhortation there. And again, I, I used the let us statements to give me a little bit of guidance on how to, to you know, hone in. Yeah, let us fear uh, and believe, least we come short of it. Now, that's saying, not saying that you have. It's saying examine your heart to see whether or not you did come short of it. Because if you, if you examine your heart and what you see is that the confession you've made that Jesus died for sin and therefore you're to live holy, and if that's not a truth about what you see when you are honest with yourself, then you might be one of those who have not have come short of actually entering. And he's asking you to examine yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. Um, so I liked let us fear. I really want you guys to consider doing a word study on that word fear, though, because that, that reverential fear that it's speaking of there is the kind of fear that should, if you have a reverential respect for a holy God, just as Daniel, when he stood before him, his pallor changed and his, he trembled 
There should be that same kind of trembling in your spirit when you consider what if I'm not? What if I'm not saved, right? And you need to consider that. Now, this is not to make anyone feel that they can't have an assurance because you absolutely can have an assurance. Uh, there are two things that I like to do back-to-back back when I, in, in the way that I teach precept studies. I love to teach covenant first and follow it up with 1 John. 1 John says these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. And 1 John lays it out systematically, the evidences that should be in your life. And it's not any one individual thing. One of the individual things is, yes, you have a confession that Jesus is the Christ. But there are other evidences given there as well. One is that you love your brethren, that you keep God's commandments. In other words, when God came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, he says, right? Everybody knows that one. What part of the law did he come to fulfill, and what part of the law do we still observe? Is there, is there some part of the law that we still observe? What part? Moral. The moral law. See, the, the technical part of the law, which are the sacrifices at the temple, he fulfilled, so the law is fulfilled. But what about all those other laws that God gave about loving your uh, God above all, uh, above all others, that there not be any other gods before him? Is that still in there? It, yeah, it, that's a Ten Commandment. That's, and when we did, uh, was it James? I think there was a place in James that talked about the royal law, you know, and, and how that, that part was still in place. That is something we are still to keep. Why? It's the moral law. You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't commit murder. You put God above all things. Those things are all still laws, and you must keep them. As God's children, those are things that you are to pursue in holiness. The contrast is, is keeping them does not bring you to heaven. Ex well, that's exactly right. So good, good point. This is where I think it becomes complicated for people. They, they stop separating justification versus sanctification. Keeping the, the moral law of God is our responsibility as believers, and it's part of the of not justification, it's not how you get saved, it's your sanctification, it's your faith walk. And through obedience in that sanctification faith walk, you earn rewards. God says, I will reward you for these things. You will gain crowns. I will give you um, this much, and then because you're faithful in that, I will give you more, right? So keeping the royal law, keeping the moral law, of God is still required even though he accomplished all the works at the temple that were required for sins. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, right, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> Me either, maybe. Exactly. Well, you know, honestly, if you truly love God, what does your heart want to do? Obey him. Honor him. What was it that he got so upset with Israel about that he had to remove them off the land? What had they done to his name? They profaned it or blasphemed it before the nations. And God is saying, if you're my house, I'm not tolerating that. Just like Israel was kicked off the land, if you come into faith and I seal you with my spirit and you begin to act in a way that is really disobedient to me and dishonors my name, blasphemes me, I am going to make you weak or sick or even make you fall asleep. There, there is discipline in the household of God. However, in this chapter, is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about the discipline of God for the faith walk? No. This is talking justification. Here he's saying, if in fact you are going to come in into faith with me, you need to understand with it comes responsibility of honoring me. So in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he, he tells us to be diligent to enter it. But in 12 and 13, he says, because I'm going to use, but I will use my word. By my word, I will, I will pierce your heart and, and divide between, what is it, marrow and, what does he say? Um, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and that word is able to judge the thoughts and the intention of the heart so he will examine you so if you you come to him and you say yes lord he has already examined your heart to see if if in fact you've really were genuine in what you were saying yes to he knows i love that he knows even better than i know you know, when I was a little girl at age nine and walked an aisle, quite honestly, I did it to honor my mother and to honor the people in my church because I felt it was expected of me. And my sister walked the aisle, so I followed right behind her, you know. My sister, who's so brave, she's younger than me, but she got down in that aisle and started walking. I went, well, I better go if my sister's doing it, right? <laughs> I don't want to be shown up by my sister. Well, really, I can remember kind of that, whole thing in my mind and so I did it but I didn't I don't think I understood it really that well but it was a piece of a building block in my life that helped me eventually come into true faith it still still established some real valuable things for me so I don't I don't begrudge a young child doing that but I do think it's dangerous if if we as adults think that that's that's a true confession for a young, young child. They may, it may be, but it also may not be. And everyone is different. We're all unique. But that's why he's saying here, examine, lest there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart. And, and also let us fear and believe God's word. And what, what that word believe entails is, is a n number of things, which we, we aren't going to go into right now. But you have, to, you have to be in a reverential state of examining your heart before a, a, a holy God who is going to examine your heart, lest you come, have come short of entering into it. So he's just saying examine yourself. All right, 6 to 10 of chapter 4. Another um, exhortation, what do we see? He tells you not to do something. 
do not harden your hearts. Okay, so that could be good. He, because why? Why don't harden your heart? What has God fixed in place for us? Well, what has God, what does he say about um, hearing his voice? Yes, that we are to hear his voice and enter into his rest. So he says in uh, 6 to 10, then don't harden your heart. God has fixed a day today for you to enter. Enter it, right? Now, this very subtly brings up the subject about these believers that he's addressing, their understanding of what the rest of God really was. Because he's making it clear to them here that it is a today moment to enter in. So we're going to do a timeline together in just a minute and look at that particular point. But do, let's find it here. Do not harden your heart. God fixed, God fixed today to enter, to enter it, enter it, it what? Well, let's go back to chapter 4, the beginning of it. So far what we see is we're, we're looking about uh, in chapter 4, what is your major subject? The rest of God. And so what is he telling us to do in chapter 4 as, on the whole? Enter into it, right. And what is the rest of God or who is the rest of God? The rest of God is salvation and how do you enter it? Through Jesus. So your title might be up here with Jesus is the heavenly calling. Here it might be Jesus is what? The rest of God. And in that perspective right there, you can already see that where the Jews who their idea of what the rest of God, which it might have been yet still misunderstood, and it might have held a different meaning for them, he's going to start to clarify that for us. And we're going to break that down in just a minute and look at that more carefully. So be diligent. Do not uh, let us fear and believe in 1 to 5, at least we come short of it. And 6 to 10, do not harden your heart. God fixed today to enter, enter into his rest. Okay, then 11 to 13. Again, okay, there's the let us. Do you see the let us in verse 11? Let us be diligent to do what? It's really interesting because this be diligent to enter is a warning. And then he follows it with why, which is what Celeste just brought up, because the word is, of God is what he's going to use to judge your heart. And he's going to judge you by, based on what his word is. He's given us the good news. He's told us from the beginning, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of your calling. And he's your confession. He's your assurance. He's your hope. And he said, so you have to be diligent in entering that rest who is Jesus? Okay. Well, and the word of God, and Jesus is the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and then it came and dwelt among us. It, it all 
convolutes together again, right? It just, it's really, it, it is a windy, twisty, they all connect, and it can become a little bit confusing, but, but here's what I think is really important about us doing this inductive process with this particular book, uh, especially, it seems like. Once you establish doctrines, which become those pillars, you will stand in that. So what you know is true about a covenant is that it can't be broken, and therefore, if you've entered into covenant with God, you cannot lose your salvation. Therefore, you cannot interpret anything in chapter 3 and 4 as, as being understood that you can lose your salvation if you don't obey and if you're unbelieving. And not only that, but if, in fact, you're unbelieving, then how did you ever get into faith? Right? I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. But there are people who do perceive these chapters in that way. So now what you need to be able to do is establish doctrines about that. You need to have your established understanding about the three covenants that God gave. And we're going to do it later, but for right now, you may want to do some research. I did, I did this. I went to an old chart that I had done before when I taught covenant in lesson eight, and I pulled out my chart on the three covenants and pulled out what the major points are concerning those three. You went to, she wants to have my list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, so in the three covenants, the first covenant being the Abrahamic covenant, that one was an eternal covenant. God established it. And when Abraham believed God concerning the things that God was saying to him, God did what? What was his response to his belief? He credited to him as righteousness. And we see the interpretation in Galatians chapter 3 that helps to merge our understanding that what he was actually giving Abraham at that time when he gave him that covenant was he was giving him the gospel, which is really cool, okay? That's the first covenant. Abrahamic covenant results in salvation. If you believe God, it was credited as righteousness. But then in the... In the covenant of the law how is it distinct was it an eternal covenant no it was not to be an everlasting covenant and w did it come with conditions absolutely it was a conditional covenant and by the way p.s who entered into the covenant how did they enter into it well in the first covenant with abraham who entered abraham with god one man one god one personal relationship established at a time but when it came to the covenant of the law, who entered? The whole nation. It was a national covenant. And it resulted for them in receiving the law. What did the law do for them? Practical, in a practical sense, what did the law do for them? Gave them rules to live by. It gave them their laws of their land, of how their community would work and operate. It also gave them a worship system, didn't it? And so he told them how to go about worshiping God, how to approach a holy God, gave them the temple at, the, at that time, the tabernacle. Um, and so it had its purpose. But that was a covenant to a nation. And so they stood before God and said, yes, Lord, we will. But then what? Then they didn't, right? So, there, so in this particular one, God, in that particular covenant, God, God said, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey... I will curse. So it was conditional. And in the, in the end of it, did that covenant 
ever give salvation. No, now you aren't seeing this right now, but when we get into chapter 8, 9, and 10 in Hebrews, it's going to tell you that very clearly. That law was never intended to be a covenant for salvation. The blood of lambs and goats can never take away sin. It was a temporal covering, and it was a symbolic picture. Okay? But, but... That's right. That's exactly. Yeah, and but if they if they lived in that, but they still had to even in that Abrahamic, even in the covenant of the law, under the Mosaic covenant, if they wanted eternal salvation, they had to enter into a different covenant. Which one? Which was what? The well before beforehand, which was the Abrahamic covenant, which was looking forward to the Christ to come, believing God that He was sending a seed. The seed was going to be their redemption. So even though they were in the covenant of the law, that didn't save them. If they wanted salvation, they had to believe in the Abrahamic covenant. So that's why among Israel as a whole, as a nation, some were saved and some were not. Some would enter into the covenant of Abraham and some would not. And this book, particularly in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, we're seeing those who fell in the wilderness were disobedient because why? They didn't believe. They hadn't believed the word of God. And the word of God primarily was founded on Abraham promising him that land that they were heading into. Okay? Mm-hmm. But it, it, he promised the nation. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to tell your group of people. I'm going to keep telling them. And people could still be examples. I mean, they had to come out and do what he was saying. But other, other people outside of it still could have come into that faith. Mm-hmm. So he didn't omit anybody from That's faith. exactly right. That's Even right. Like he does today. Right. But but even in the Abrahamic covenant, it was it was uh, if it was going he was going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So it really was never exclusive. It was always inclusive for the whole world. But he chose out a specific people to be their light, to be that demonstration of godliness in the world that people would want to come to God. Right? Okay. So let us. Let us be diligent to enter in 11 to 13. Now the la- uh, 14 and 15 of chapter 4. There's another, basically another let us in there, right? Let us hold fast our confession, not verse 16 yet. We're going to do that one separate because it's another let us. Okay, so I want to get every let us titled in our paragraphs here. So 14 and 15 says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast then to our confession. And who is our confession? Jesus, our high priest, right? All right. Let us hold fast. You could just say to our confession, but I'm going to add in there to clarify it more more specifically. Let us hold fast to Jesus our high priest because remember he opens 
in verse 1, uh, 1 to 4 in chapter 3, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession or of our calling, right? And then he says, now here at the end of 4, let us hold fast to Jesus, our high priest, and our confession. And so it's really cool is he's tying together our confession, our assurance, our hope, um, all to back to Jesus, who is the rest of God. And he wants you to enter into that confession and into that rest. Okay, in verse 16 now, Carrie, you can give us that one. I know, and I think that's your favorite place. <laughs> John, uh, near with confidence. And I think this is cool. I see a contrast between drawing near with confidence to where he started with letting us fear. Did, you, did anybody else catch that contrast? He says in verse 1, let us fear, right? At least we come short of it. But at the end, he says, let us rather draw near with confidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's more to it than just that. You're right. The next part of it would be then what he's actually doing is showing us that in Jesus, you no longer need what you used to have, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's why the fear is reverential fear. So there's a, what a contrast, reverential fear where you're going, oh man, I better, I better examine myself. I better make sure I, why? Because you have a fear of a God who's going to judge one day. But at the end of it, he says, but rather let us be boldly confident to come into his presence because we're approaching a throne of grace. In other words, it's not by your works. So it doesn't have anything to do with you doing works. He's saying, actually, he tells us to um, cease from your own works. Right? Okay, so let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. All right, so that gives us the, the flow of thought. Now we've very clearly established our subject matter is about salvation, which is justification in this case. We, uh, we see the flow of thought, how he starts with Jesus is the heavenly calling and Jesus is the rest of God. I'm going to put a box around those so you can see those pretty good. He's the rest of God and he is the heavenly calling. All right. Now what we can do. Absolutely. That is exactly right. And in all of this, he's got these warnings over and over. Examine yourself to make sure that you actually are in there. Approach your salvation and your own personal life with a reverential fear that you're willing to say, am I truly, have I really uh, entered into this confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he says he has done? And if, in fact, he has, then later he's going to get into a challenge with these people saying, then don't go back to what you used to be doing, Jewish believers who used to go to the temple, because you don't need that. Who is Jesus? 
He's your confidence. He's your hope. He's your assurance. And he's your high priest. So what do you not now need? The earthly priests. He is now your great high priest. What an, what an awesome thing he's doing with the mindset. If you, if you get your mind into who these, the audience of this letter is, what he's doing is challenging them then to see that God has given them pictures and Jesus is the reality of them. So that's why I started you with understanding later on in verse 9 and 10, he actually goes to that and says very clearly, these are copies of the true. This is a shadow of things to come, right? So what we're going to look at now is concerning God's rest, he gave some pictures, didn't he? So let's look in chapter 4. I just want to work on that just a little bit more carefully. Next, because in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back to the rest of God and fully develop this, the subject of the rest of God. We'll, we'll get more into the technicality of the, um, the doctrines concerning it at that time. Right now, what I want to do is just simply clarify in your minds what the perspective is of this audience he is writing to. Okay? So that you're in the contextual understanding of who they are and what they're thinking. Okay. So... He starts out in chapter uh, 4 talking about them entering into the rest, of the, uh, the rest of God. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. Now this is interesting. When there's a quote, the quote is supporting the statement that he just made, Right? He's saying that they didn't get to enter because they didn't believe. And he's, so then he quotes and he says, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although, what? His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, this is interesting. It's like, what? What does that mean, right? Did anybody get that figured out pretty good? <laughs> it, it was, it's, a, it's kind of a twisty, windy thing again, but let's, let's take it slow and let's break it down. Okay, we start out by he's going to enter the rest. Now, in verse 4, he says, For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he finishes the thought out by saying that God's rest, uh, that the rest of God is, is a picture then of God's true rest, which was established on day 7, right? Okay, so let's put that up here. God rested. right, on the seventh day. And if you go back, that's seen in uh, Genesis 2.2, if you wanted to go back and actually look at the original statement on that, right? Hebrews 4, verse 4 actually references that, okay? And he says he rested, why? Mm-hmm. Because his works were finished. All right. Now, later then, and, and when were they finished? Were finished from what? From foundation. We have to get that on here. Foundation of earth. That's significantly important in, in getting the totality of everything that's being said here. That's in 4.3. His works were finished from the foundation of the earth. Now, God gave Israel then something to remind them about this fact. He gave them a picture, right? 
What is the first? No. What is the first remembrance of rest that God gave them? The Sabbath. And it says right here in the text, it makes mention of it, right? So what it, what, let's put that up first. He tells them through Moses, rest from your work. He, he tells them that actually also here, doesn't he? Um, in verse 10, for the one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So he's saying rest from your work in, ver in verse uh, 10. Did I say 10? Okay, 10. Let me put that up here, 410. And he gave Israel a picture. I can't spell. A picture, the Sabbath. Right? And that was instituted. If you want to go back, you can look at that in Exodus 20. This is just one of the places. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, where you're going to see that. Now, the rest from your work as a remembrance that the work of the Father is finished. Correct? given to them by Israel through Moses. So he makes a reference to, to the fact that they had had this Sabbath in verse 9. Do you see it? For there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, before I get to that point, what I want to do is timeline some of this stuff because it's very interesting. He goes on to say, he says, On the seventh day God rested, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. Now, what's really cool is I think that what he's doing with Israel at this point, with this, through this letter to the Hebrews, is they had a misunderstanding about the rest of God. Their idea of the rest of God was, in part, fixed to this. They had a Sabbath day of rest, right? The other issue was what? What else did they consider the rest of God? The promised land. So the first picture is the Sabbath rest, and then also they understood the land to be God's rest. Okay? And so let me, let's see. Hold on a second. Let me look at the verse here, what I've got on here. Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 actually elaborates on that. Go back to 3, 18 and 19 with me. He's actually going to go all the way to 17. He says that um, he was angry with those Israelites for 40 years. Was it not those who sinned? whose body fell in the wilderness, and to whom he swore they would not enter his rest, but, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter his rest because of unbelief. So what are the two terms that he actually joins together then? Disobedience and unbelief. Yes? Yes. That's exactly right. And, and, and in grumbling about not having water, what was the issue? They weren't trusting God. They, weren't trusting God. they didn't believe that God was actually going to provide for them and do with them what he said he would do. And then again, when it was time to enter after the 40 years were over, uh, 
I know. And then they had another water experience, didn't we? Exactly. So they have 40 years of wandering until the last one of those. Now, tell we, did, we don't have time to go into a lot of this, but why do you think God was so harsh with those that he caused them to fall in the wilderness and not enter into the promised land? What had Israel seen from God? Yes. Yeah. The, all the plagues had occurred, the parting of the sea, the manna that came from heaven, the, and, the, and then in these two instances that we looked at, water that was provided where there was none. And so it's very interesting to me how God basically said to those who did not believe, well, it wasn't like he was just saying, well, you didn't, you didn't believe me, so. Well, that seems unfair, does it? After all they had seen, does it really? <laughs> okay. Also, he wanted to set up the major nation as a light to the Gentiles. That's right. So if you have a whole mass of non-believing people. That's right. There you go. And, and uh, it's important to note that all of these had also entered into that covenant with God called the law. But they weren't saved. And they fell in the wilderness. Right? Absolutely, and I was going to say that. You know, they were promised to go into the land, and they called it the land of rest. That's how they referred to it. And here God, in, in the last couple of verses or so of Hebrews chapter 3, he makes reference that they understood it to be a land of rest. And yet when they entered in there, did they really have rest? Short periods of it, possibly, yes, because there, there were times when there was a bit of rest going on. But on the whole, ultimately, what happened with them? They were scattered. They were cast out of that. That was not the rest, obviously, right? I know, very interesting, and that part of it can get confusing for some people as well, but in Moses' case, why did God not let him enter? Did he not enter because of unbelief? No, he did not enter because of what? Disobedience, he did not honor God. Now, why did God do that to Moses? Poor Moses, I mean, really, all that he went through, right? But tell me, why would God do that with Moses? Do you remember what happened with Moses when he was about to go back to Egypt to get... Uh, to bring Israel out, and he had not circumcised his own son, what was God about to do? Take his life. Why? Because he had not been obedient. Not because he hadn't believed God, but because he had been disobedient. The one person, what, who was Moses for Israel, and still to this day is? He's, their, he's this pillar, this, this patriarch that they so re revere and look up to. It's really... A saint in their eyes and and 
since he was a leader that God had called, he had also given Moses some very special things, had he not? We didn't study all this yet, and I don't know if we will yet in the next few weeks, but Moses actually uh, was graced with seeing the glory of God from God's back going past him. Remember when he hit him in the cleft of the rocks that he not see God face to face, but he allowed him to see God's glory. And from the result of that, we also know when he was on Mount Sinai, the glory of God and being in, his, in the presence of that pre-incarnate Jesus, he had a glow about him, right? So that he had some special endowments that were given to him, special graces, special um, opportunities as a leader, for God's people. And so why do you think God, when Moses dishonored God by disobeying God's instructions, right? We could get into the technicalities of the whole story and it would take us a whole lesson. But, but the bottom line was he disobeyed God too and yet he was God's leader. So can God tolerate that from a leader? So there was discipline for Moses. He fell in the wilderness, not because of unbelief, but because of disobedience. But quite honestly, the picture is still the same. Those who are disobedient don't what? Don't enter into the land. And in the context of Hebrews, the disobedience is, is a rejection of what? Not hearing what? The word of God and believing it. And that's what happened with Israel in the, on the whole. Most of Israel did not believe. Now, there were a couple who did. Do you guys remember who, who did? Joshua and Caleb. And what were they then privileged to do? Take the next generation into the land. The reason God harshly judged that first generation is because they had seen the mighty deeds of God, and yet they refused to believe. Even though, how many of you guys have, have had conversations with people who have said, well, if God would just show up in my living room and talk to me, I would believe. If he would just do a miracle for me, I would believe. Or if I could see somebody raised from the dead. I yeah, if I could, and that was right out of scripture, right? Some believed and some not. That's right, and some did not believe. They, ex they excused it, right? Aliens or something. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so though in... In those two uh, references that we went to, we saw unbelief and again unbelief, even though God had shown himself through them. The in the first account, he struck the rock, as God said, water came out. Now, there's another part to that story um, that has to do with the imagery of Christ being the rock and being living water, and the striking of that rock one time is that he dies once for all. Okay, that's another interpretation of imagery that's given through that, which we didn't really get into. But then there, the second time, God said to him to do what to the rock? Speak. Speak, not strike. Why not? The rock had already been smitten once, once for all, right? If he, if he went the second time and struck, and not only did he strike it once, but he struck it twice, showing this anger. That's right. So his him as a leader, he had basically dishonored God. He had not obeyed God, what God had told him to do. God, there's a picture. This is one of the reasons why God is so angry with us about the subject of divorce because it's an image that we are to be portraying to the world of our relationship of Jesus and the church. 
And so in the Old Testament, there's a lot of imageries that God says, don't violate them. When he struck the rock the first time, that was a picture of Christ being uh, crucified once, living water. Later, Jesus talks about, and out of me shall flow uh, uh, fountains of living water. He says, I that he come to me and drink of me, he said to the woman at the well, I am living water. So the picture of imagery of him being water and God allowing the rock who Christ is, what's another imagery, he's blending several imageries in that one, right? And so he's saying, strike it once and, and I will give you living water and it will save your, your physical life, but it's a spiritual picture, right? So the second time Moses says, speaking to the rock, because Christ had already been crucified once through the first striking. He can't crucify him again. Now he's to speak to the rock. He doesn't do it. So he, he judges him harshly because he's ruining God's picture. Oops. No, it's not just because he got angry, although that's true, but it's more importantly he's violating the, um, the, the standard of God's doctrine, what is true about God's word, what his message is. And then that imagery of the striking of the rock, which was completed, he can't come back and strike the rock again. See, isn't that interesting? Okay, now I don't know where Kay will take us. Hopefully he'll, she'll lead us. At. So rested on the seventh day, and, the, and therefore they are to rest from their work. Then that's number one. That's the first picture, Right? The second picture is this one, which is the land. So we gave him two images of the land. Now let's do. Let's talk about what it said, though. In um, about, let's do this on a timeline. I want to do it this way. He says about his works that they were finished from where? His works finished from the foundation. Okay, that's in 4.4, Hebrews 4.4. We know that from Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God rested. So that's where the idea of rest came in. And why God rested is because he says that his work was finished, right? And we know then that God, when he, when he finished, he sits now where? Oh, no, God. Where does God sit? I'm sorry. Not Jesus. God sits, but we're going to get there next. God sits on his throne, right? So all of our imagery is of God himself, God the Father, sitting on his, on his throne now, ruling and reigning over that which he created, correct? So his work is finished. When work is finished, then you get to do what? Sit or rest, right? So sit down on your throne and resting, the imagery in that is what he is giving to us. So the seventh day God rested. He sat on his throne, right? He rested. His works are finished from the foundation of the world. Now he says in this particular passage, he says um, he rested from all his works. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Those who formerly had good news preached and failed to enter because of disobedience and again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So now what we've got is several different periods of time that are depicted to us. So as a good and 
Deductive student, it would behoove us to do a timeline. So we're going to try to do that real quickly so we don't run out of time. But um, I think this is going to be helpful for you to see what he's saying in here. So we see God rested. That's the creation. The next event is going to be Mount Sinai, right, where it gets the law. And this is with Moses. And in that law, he says, you rest, all right, and he establishes the Sabbath. Right? That's Exodus 20, uh, 8 to 11. Correct? All right. Then the next thing that he mentions after Moses is which character? Who follows Moses? Joshua. Joshua. And Joshua is the one he says um, is going to uh, allow them to enter into the land, Right? Now, tell me, just from your history knowledge, he's not mentioned in our text here, who's their first king in that land? Saul, right? Because who is the king that's actually mentioned to us in the, our text? David. But we know there was a king even before that, and I think it's really kind of nice to put that on there just to show you the time that has passed, right? Saul and then David, right? And so here, Joshua takes them into... This is the land of rest that they were looking forward to entering into. Many of them fell in the wilderness. Many of them died. I'm going to put a tombstone here. R-I-P, right? Although I doubt they're resting much in peace. <laughs> but, but the idea is that many of them fell, but Joshua then took many of them onto the land through Saul and through David. Now, the quote that's given to us is by who? It's from what passage? Psalm 95. Who, in whose passage would that be? David. So David wrote Psalm 95, which is our quote in Hebrews, right? Um, Joshua 1.13. Somebody opened their Bible and read that particular verse for me. So I just want you to make sure you see that this land, this land of rest is what's being referred to here. I just want you to have that reference because it's, it's helpful to establish that they considered the land that they were entering into being the land of rest. God says it in Hebrews 3 and 4 for us, but you also see it back in Joshua. What is Joshua? What does God tell Joshua in that verse? Okay, so he says he has given you rest, and he has granted you this land. Now it's very interesting to me because he actually separates them. Did you notice the word "and" in there? He's giving you this land. And he's given you rest. So even though they may not have fully understood it, he was actually separating those two qualities, the land and the rest, and yet they got merged together. And in their thinking, the land of rest. And so they're entering into the land. Joshua's taking them in. But then David later makes a quote in, in Hebrews 4, and he says to them what? Today, if you hear his voice... Do what? 
Right, do not harden your heart and enter into that rest. Right? I mean, you, you have to keep moving to the, in the conversation here. But he wants them to enter into that rest. Therefore, let us be diligent then to enter into that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of a disobedience that they had had. So when he quotes, when David quotes this verse saying, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I want you to enter into his rest. Where does that place today? Where is David when he's speaking to his audience about entering into the rest of God? They're already in the land. So, you know, that's weird. Okay, I'm in the land. Here I am. I'm in the land. And he's saying, well, if you hear his voice, enter into the land. Oh, that can't be what he meant, right? He's saying, today if you hear his voice, enter into what? His rest. So he's actually saying then, he's clarifying for these people in the audience of this particular address, he's clarifying for them, God gave you two pictures. One was the Sabbath and one was the land as pictures of rest, but that's not the true rest of God. The true rest of God is found in believing God and obeying God. So let's go back and do our contrast very fast so that we see this. I wish I, there's a couple of verses I'm going to get. Just ha- put them up here. You guys can look them up because I want you to see about 1 Peter 1.20 and Ephesians 1, uh, 2 to 5 and verse 13 that says before the foundation. Of the earth. Basically, God chose us in in Christ, okay? So the choosing was in Christ. That is why his works were finished. Okay? So the reason he was able to finish, he says, therefore, it was finished. What did Jesus do in Hebrews after he made purifications in verse 1-3? Mm-hmm. Very good. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that one. He made purification. So this is in Hebrews 1.3, which he's already established. He said he made purifications of, of sin, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea of sitting down means finished, right? All right. Wh- where was it finished? According to 1 Peter and Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the earth. So when God said his works were finished and he sat down on his throne, it was finished from before the foundation of the world. That's why up in that one verse, he says, I swore that they would not uh, enter into my rest. I swore by my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished. Although they have an opportunity, although the day was still a, a, you know, a, available to them, they did not enter into it because they were not entering in by faith believing on Jesus, who was their real rest. They did not believe God's word. When did God give a word to man that he was going to give them a savior called Jesus? In Genesis, in the garden, I will send a seed. His seed will crush the head of Satan. So that promise was given to man right from the beginning, and it was a work, a promise, that actually had already been fulfilled from before the foundation of the world. 
Isn't that cool? So if you timeline just the information that we have thus far in Hebrews, we see that he made purifications and sat down. His work is finished. Finished. What is finished? The rest of God. Which is salvation for man, right? And so that, you can say then, put it over here, from the foundation of the world. That's what she just said. It is finished. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. It is finished. All right, so that is really cool. Doing a timeline helps you understand what's going on in Hebrews. What he's actually addressing with them is their misunderstanding about what the rest was. They had had two pictures, the Sabbath and the entering into the land. And I think they were confused about that the rest of God was not those two things. Those were pictures of what God wanted to understand. Just like he's going to show us later, a symbol for the present time, copies of the true shadows of good things to come. And so the Sabbath rest was a, was a, a spiritual truth that they could live every single day to remember that God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. What had he finished? He had pre-planned, according to Ephesians 1, a plan of salvation for mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. Awesome. Very different from what they would have been thinking, though, right? So I would like to just put forward to you that what I see in Hebrews now, at this point in our study, is that everywhere along the way that we go here, we're going to be seeing this author trying to correct their perception of what, the, of what their symbols were, what their pictures were, their temple sacrifice, um, the, uh, the lamb itself, the, that particular, who their high priest was, truly is, right? So he starts right here in chapter 3, consider Jesus to be the apostle and high priest of your calling. All right. Contrasts are, we can, let me just write them up very quickly for you so you have them. Um, they heard the word, but did not profit them. Because of unbelief. Right? And that is contrasted with who? We who do what? We who believe. And what do we do? We enter rest. Correct? That's in 4.2 and 4.3. That's a contrast there. Um. We, another great contrast then is between the disobedient, right, and, and the implied responses that we are to be obedient. And in the case of this, he's giving them an instruction in 4.1. What is he telling them to do? Oh, I'm sorry. It's not 4.1. Um, it's 4.10. What is this instruction to them? That they must do what? Yes, to be uh, in 4.10, for the one who has entered his rest has done what? Has also himself rested. So he's saying don't be disobedient. You need to do what? Rest from your work as God did from his. What is their work? If you're a Jew, what is your work? The temple work. And he's saying rest from that. Because you have who? 
high priest. Yes, you had a high priest before, but now consider Jesus your high priest. Before you worked at the temple by giving sacrifices, but now you have a confession of who you say Jesus is. According to chapter 1, you're saying he's God. And in chapter 2, he's God, what? Come in flesh as the Son of God, the one that was promised. They're Christ that they were waiting for. And now he's saying you need to be obedient. Don't be disobedient, but rest from your work. Do you see the contrast there? Don't be disobedient. This is going to come up again later, and he's going to expound on this even more. Rest from your works. And I'm going to put a menorah up here to help you understand what he's talking about. Works of the temple. Temple works, okay? This is in 4.10, basically, and it's contrasted with 4, 6, and 11. So 10 and 11 follow each other. 10, rest from your works. Be diligent to enter that rest so that you will not fall through the same example of disobedience. So don't be disobedient. Rest from your works. Does everybody follow me on that? Good? Okay, excellent. And then rest from your works. How? By that earthly... Um, I'm just going to take it one more step. Rest um, from your works, again, because this is their issue, apparently, because we're going to see it later. When we, I think it's in um, chapter 6 where they keep going back to those elementary things, meaning the temple works. Um, and I'm going to put earthly priests so that you understand that's what it's, the reference is there. He's not saying it, but it's what he's saying. And it's contrasted hear his voice, we have a high priest who is Jesus, the Son of God, which was established in chapter 1 and 2, right? So the contrast here is that earthly priest and Jesus who is the, the high priest. That's what the real contrast is, even though it's not super clearly stated, if you're in the mind of a Jew, though, you will see that, okay? So this is going to be 4.11, also 4.7, where he says don't harden your hearts, um, don't fall as they did, because you, you aren't going to, you know, if you're going to retain and be a disobedient to your calling, your heavenly calling, your confession, who is Jesus, your great high priest, if you don't rest from your work with the earthly priest, you are going to fall just as they did in the wilderness, Okay, so here, if you hear his voice, 4-7, hear his voice. And here's my little symbol for the voice. I've been using a little megaphone. If you hear his voice, then enter in white today. Today. Enter. Now that today enter has a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Today means... Entering into the rest had nothing to do with the Sabbath, had nothing to do with the land. It's talking about Jesus. It, and David quoting it all the way down here once they're already on the land, and he quotes it today. If you hear his voice, enter. And what he's referring to then is here, the cross. Isn't that awesome? 
Did you get that much out of your homework this week? Uh-uh. 